0: And as we've been going through the book of Acts these last weeks, I've been drawing special attention to the supernatural dimension of the early church. How they were filled with the Holy Spirit. How the apostles went out and they healed the lame man at the gate beautiful. And I've made that point, especially that week, that we want to make sure that we're not just reading these things as metaphors for what God can do spiritually. But the Lord is giving the early church to us as an example and that that applies today, and that the Lord is still active and still moving in that way today. And there's so many things you guys know. When you go through the Bible, any passage of Scripture, there's four or five different ways you can look at it, and points you can emphasize, and applications you can draw. But I've really been leaning into that. And I want to explain why some today, aside from the fact that it's interesting and it's important, but you see in this passage, the way that the apostles and the early church are going to frame this prayer that they're going to lift up to the Lord. And it reminds us, and it reminded me as I was studying, and this really took hold of me as I was getting ready for this, how we are growing up, raised in, living in a culture, a society, maybe just a time in history that has a worldview, a way of looking at the world that is so different from that of the New Testament and the Old Testament. It is light years away. The idea of nobody believing in any God period was something that they didn't even know about back then. That was so strange to them. And we live in a a culture, for all of the good that comes from it, where we're not holding to the You know, the famous solas of the Reformation, which was sola scriptura and sola fide, only faith, only the word of God, right? Now it's like, it's sola, physics, biology, chemistry, and math. That's the world. That's how it exists. You can reduce it all to a chemical. If you want, whatever it is, is it love? We know why love feels the way it does. It's because there's these chemicals firing in your brain. How did the world come into existence? Because this is how physics works and this is how math comes together. And everything can be explained that way. And this is where we're raised, this is what our kids are taught in school, and funnily enough, we think of that as a neutral position, you know, like this is just neutral, we're not teaching them anything that's religious, we're we're just going to teach them what's in the middle, but in fact we're teaching them something very strong, and I'm not about to start ranting about schools, I'm just making that point. Because when you read the Bible, when you read the Bible, it tells a very different story, We're talking about gods and men, angels and demons, miracles and prophecies from Genesis to Revelation. And it relates these things as fact. And there's always a bunch of very sympathetic intellectuals that want to come and say something like, look, as long as you don't take the Bible literally, there's a lot of great lessons to be learned from it. A lot of good life lessons to be learned and very condescending, but also very unscriptural. But the problem is us in the church, we believe the Bible, we believe it i was singing the song to my kids this morning because micah was has been kind of laid up and sick and he wanted to watch tv but i said it's sunday you're going to stay home watch something watch a bible story and he said how do you spell bible and of course i started singing the b-i-b-l-e right i stand alone on the word of god the b-i-b-l-e you've been singing it since you were kids but i think we can have a tough time when the bible stands at such sharp contrast to how we live and where we live to really assimilate everything that it teaches us Because the Bible does not talk about miracles and prophecies and dreams and visions and angels and demons and the Lord of hosts as metaphors for everyday life. It talks about it as real. And this is a problem because we have a hard time with that. And we struggle with that and we start to feel really silly if we start believing that. And we can even say things like, well, if that's the case, then why do we only ever see things functioning according to physics, biology, chemistry, and math? Well, a few weeks ago, I explained that that is not the case. And every single one of us raised our hand and said, we personally, or know somebody close to us who has experienced a miraculous event in their life. But we tend to think of those things as aberrations. Well, that's weird, and I can't use that to, d- to define my world, even though that's exactly what it should mean. Well, why do we not see as much of that stuff? Let me give you an example. The advantage of a submarine in naval warfare is surprise and secrecy. You don't know that it's there. You don't know that it's coming. It keeps quiet. You watch those movies, right? They're all silent. They're under the water. You can't see them. And then boom, that's when the torpedoes fire. Because as soon as it's noticed, all the ships above the water have more than the firepower to take it out. So its advantage lies in sneak attacks, surprise, being under the water where no one else can see it. And I would say in the same way, that's how our enemy has hidden himself to the point where we don't even believe he's there anymore. Well, I don't see any of it. Yes, you do, but the devil has clothed himself in such a way that we can't tell. C.S. Lewis very famously said that the devil is perfectly content to turn people into either a sorcerer or a scientist. Somebody who is so into all that stuff that they believe that they can slaughter an animal and say these words and they can make something magical happen, or into a scientist who believes that none of it's real. And I think that If you look at how Christianity rampaged through, especially if we're going to look at our culture, through Europe and just drove out the idolatrous religions there until we don't even know what their names were anymore, then it makes perfect strategic sense for the enemy to switch tactics and pull back and to operate through proxies rather than overt assault on the church to the point where we don't even believe he's there. But in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we are reminded, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul characterizes your life and mine as part of the grand battle between heaven and hell. Says that we're living in a world where we see things happening, we see people making decisions, we see institutions laying down rules. But Paul says that's not where the fight is. The fight is in the heavenly places. I'm not talking about heaven, capital H, where the angels and God live. Heavenly places meaning the air where we can't see, under the water. If we're going to go back to that submarine metaphor, where we're up here and there's something going on underneath. We are soldiers in that battle, and we are prizes to be won. The stakes are real. And here's the thing, you guys. The churches in America are being emptied because, among other things, we have misidentified what our mission is, and we have tried to define the church according to the prevailing worldview of the culture in which we live. Well, they don't don't want to believe that. They don't hear that. So we better change. We don't do that anywhere else. We send missionaries over to Nepal or India, We say, here's all the ways the culture is at odds with Scripture. So this is the battle you're going to have to fight. We don't say, well, they don't believe in all that stuff, so don't talk about the stuff they disagree with. We get that when it's over there. When it's over here, we think we're so clever that we've figured so many things out that we've got to kind of hush up all those embarrassing parts of the Bible. We talk about heaven versus hell. People are going to laugh at us. Talk about the darkness versus the light. I mean, that sounds like something out of a movie which by the way, rabbit trail should tell you something. Why are people still so compelled by those kinds of stories when they're reading them or watching them on TV or hearing them told to them? Because they're real. There's something true there that we have abandoned, unfortunately. And if you teach the younger generation or the older generation in the church that, look, there really is nothing beyond what you see and hear, but church is still very important. They're going to say, why? Why? Why is this important? Why should I stick around? If we're going to teach them the same kind of message they can find on Dr. Oz when they turn on the TV, why would they get up early on a Sunday morning and come to church? If I can believe any story and give the same kind of motivation and inspiration out of it that I can get at church, why would I come back? We make a mistake. And I think we have made a mistake as a capital C church in saying, look, the world is is so anti-supernatural we've got to stop talking about the supernatural side of it so that we can retain people but what you have done is we've made the church just like everybody else and we do not realize that people are hungry and desperate to be told that there is something more to their life we can't even answer the question why do bad things happen anymore because that involves describing the battle between heaven and hell that we've chosen not to talk about and i'm not berating anybody here i'm talking on a grand capital c church scale People are desperate to believe that there's something more. And here's the thing. They do believe there's something more. They believe it at, the, at that gut level. And so when you come and tell them, look, it's okay. Just God wants to, to give you a happy life and everything will be fine. And he wants you to teach you how to be good with your finances. And, you know, all those things are true. But you leave out the whole spiritual warfare part of it, the miraculous side of it. Somebody's going to go, well, maybe I should go find somebody else that believes this stuff. And the sincere among us can see that and understand that. I've said a million times, if none of this is true, why are we wasting our time? Well, this is tradition. People don't care about tradition anymore. They want new, they want hot, they want what's coming right off the press. Well, there's cultural value to it. Well, why don't we make new cultural values? Cultures shift, cultures change. Don't you believe that? It comes back to it's true, it's real. And people are much more interested in somebody who's gonna tell them a radical story that they believe with all their heart than in somebody that's gonna come and be wishy washy about it. Don't we see that on TV? People believing all these radical, crazy things. Really? You're into that? You're gonna burn down the town for that? You're gonna give up your whole life for that? And we say, it's ridiculous, it's crazy. But that's because people are coming to them and telling the story with such passion and intensity and believing it at the root of their soul that people want that. So it is to that end that when we read the book of Acts and it lays out this combat between the church and the forces of darkness, we have to look at it literally and believe what it says, because not only is it true, but this is what is compelling about the church. And it's what sets us apart today. Why do we want to be like everybody else? I don't think we do. The early church is going to demonstrate here that we are engaged in a battle against the forces of evil. And not only are we in a battle, but that we have unbeatable power at our disposal to win the battle. We are the conquistadores. We're the conquerors of God. And sometimes we need to come and have our priorities realigned. We need to think, how have I been conceiving about the gospel? What is the purpose of the church anyway? You're going to see it laid right here in this passage. I love this passage. I think it's so key. Doctrinally, it makes so many amazing points. But I'm not going to lean into the doctrine of this so much, although we will touch on it. I just want us to get realigned and re-excited about the, the truth, the story that we are a part of in Christ Jesus. Let's start reading at verse 23, and we're going to go down to verse 28. I'm going to divide this prayer into two parts. First is when they lay out the problem, and second is when they ask for a solution. But Let's start verse 23. When they, that's Peter and John and the man they had healed. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. We'll pause right there. So much to look at here. The last thing we saw, Peter and John had healed the lame man when they were going up to the hour of prayer. They preached the gospel. Thousands of people got saved and they were arrested. They were thrown into jail overnight. The next day they were brought in front of the ruling council, which was called the Sanhedrin and they were commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus ever again. We talked about, remember, spiritual intimidation. They weren't going to do anything to him yet, but they were going to try and scare them away from doing what God had called them to do. But Peter and John were defiant. They weren't cowardly anymore. Peter wasn't about to deny Jesus three times today. John wasn't going to keep silent today. They said, whether it's better to listen to God or to you, I'll let you be the judge. Well, now they've returned to the church. The moment's over, and you guys know this, sometimes you act in a moment and you look back and you go, wow, where did that come from? And all of a sudden, the fear or the anxiety that should have been present in, a, in the moment hits you after you walk away. Like, wow, okay. Well, they've returned to the church and they've reported the threat. It says they went to their friends. In Greek there, that's just, they went to their own. I love that. They went to their own. They, the family, they belong together. They went back and reported what they had said to them. Can you imagine the The confusion and the fear that would have swept through that body. Confusion first, because remember, back in Acts chapter 1, they were still asking Jesus, Lord, are you now at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And they were seeing thousands of Jews getting saved in Jerusalem. The Lord is adding to their number daily. They probably thought, we're on a roll. The Lord is about to to take back Jerusalem for his sake. And then Rome's going to be gone and Jesus is going to return. But then all of a sudden now they've been arrested and they've been threatened. If you preach in that name again, there's going to be trouble. I thought this was supposed to be the redemption of Israel. I thought this was supposed to be the the end where the the Messiah would come. Isn't that what was going to happen? Or the fear, like, what are we do? Are we going to go back to the temple tomorrow? Are we still going to go back for prayer tomorrow? What are we going to do? They were full of faith, but that doesn't mean that they weren't afraid. How could this happen? But we see what they did immediately in verse 24. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. We've seen back in Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to keep coming back to it. They had been laying a spiritual, disciplined foundation of prayer and worship and fellowship and sharing with one another they had built up their prayer muscles so that when the moment came they knew exactly what to do and they went to prayer and i want us to focus as i've said on how they cast their struggle how they're going to define what's happening to them and it's illuminating for us today and the first thing we see is in verse 24 they refer to god as the sovereign lord this is so cool that word sovereign lord it's actually one word Usually in the Bible, in the Greek anyway, when you see the word Lord, it's the word kurios. And it means Lord. It means master. It, in uh, Spanish Bibles, they translate it senor. It's like it can mean sir. It can mean Lord. It can mean master. This is different. They use the word in Greek despota. This is where we get our word despot or tyrant. in, in English, there's, a, there's an oppressive element to that word. There is not that in Greek. But the point is, it is absolute ruler. This is not our master. This is God of everything. Absolute ruler of everything that you created. They talk about him as the creator of the world. And we see down in verse 28, the one who makes plans that cannot be stopped, even though there is opposition. They're lifting up the sovereignty of God. This is always a good idea when you're praying. That's why whenever we have our prayer meetings, I lay out first, we're going to worship. We're going to remind ourselves of who we're dealing with who we're praying with because then that builds up your faith to pray if you jump straight into your problems sometimes you need to back up <laughs> say who am i talking to because sometimes by the time you've finished praising the lord and acknowledging who he is you almost feel like he's got this hey, he's got this and they quote from psalm chapter two why did the gentiles rage very interesting because in in hebrew in that in that psalm you know it says why did the nations rage Well, that that word for nations in Hebrew is goyim, which is even today used to talk about Gentiles, people who are not Jews. So uh, it's it's an appropriate translation. But why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That word for anointed in Greek is Christ. In Hebrew would have been Messiah. Talking about Jesus, his anointed one. And it's got this mystified attitude. When you go back and read that psalm, it's like, wh- what do they think they're doing? They're, they're rallying to fight against God and the one whom God has picked. And it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Like, what are you going to do? I've already decided who my anoint is. I've already set up my king. And you don't get to have a say in that. And they have that same mystified attitude here. Like, Lord, they're opposing you, but you're the despot. You're, you're the absolute ruler. So what are they doing coming up against you? They're tying it directly, using this passage to describe what had happened where Pilate and Herod and the other Jews and Gentiles who had put Jesus on the cross. And this is this first key for us to understand, that God in heaven, when we're talking about how we cast our worldview as Christians, God in heaven is absolutely unstoppable. And his son, Jesus Christ, is seated at his right hand with all authority. In Revelation chapter 5, you can turn there if you like. Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. John, the same John who was just arrested, has a vision of heaven. And he sees angels and he sees things he calls living creatures. It's really interesting to me. We'll talk about this some other time. So there's angels and there's also living creatures. Like There's things that God made that stay in heaven. And they have four heads and wings, and it's amazing. But he sees all these things that if any of us were to see, them, we'd probably pass out. And he says, I looked, and around the throne, this is Revelation 5.11, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, that's Jesus, to receive power and wealth, with worshiping the Lord, because they see him. And when they see him, it doesn't matter how glorious they are. It doesn't matter that if one angel showed up in this room, every single one of us would be telling that story every day for the rest of our lives. Thousands upon thousands of them, the elders, the 24 elders, which I understand that to represent the church and the nation of Israel, all of God's people, they fall down on whatever crowns they had, whatever glory they had, they throw it at his feet, and they worship him because he is the Lord of all. We believe in God. Sometimes I know that sounds silly, but we have to remind ourselves of that. We believe in God. We believe that he is exalted over the whole world, that he reigns in power. We can live like practical atheists if we're not careful. We believe in God, but we live our life in such a way that we might as well not believe in God. You can't tell the difference between the way we make decisions and an atheist makes decisions. The way that we talk to each other or an atheist talks to each other or whatever, You can't tell the difference that's not good because the lord sits on the throne of heaven and rules over all things this is the first piece in understanding our purpose that god is the absolute ruler the despot of all creation and his son jesus is seated at his right hand with how much authority all authority and this is how we understand ourselves as well because god is the creator right you created all things Everything was made by the Lord. And everything was made according to his design until sin came in and ruined everything. So here's how you can conceive of yourself as a Christian in worshiping the one true God and refusing to bow to the cultural pressure around you. It's like you're a loyalist. God is the true king, and I'm not following after any pretender. We're not going to rule ourselves. We're not going to follow some other fallen angel we're not going to even come up with our own ideas and follow those. i'm following god i'm a loyalist you know we talk about the uh the american revolution i read tons of books on the american revolution because i find it fascinating and i grew up in virginia so i've seen all these places too but you know we weren't too happy with the loyalists we did very nasty things to the tories right Because you should be on our side. You should be a patriot. You should cast off the shackles of the king. That's a political thing. But look at that in terms of heaven and earth. I realize that cast us as the bad guys. Just work with me for a minute, okay? (laughs) Where the whole world has their plans. Like in Psalm chapter 2, to cast off the authority of the king. But we're those who say, no, there's one true king and his name is Jesus. And I'm not budging on this. You guys have seen in the news, over in in Nigeria, Christians are being slaughtered right now. It's still going on. Renounce Jesus or we're going to chop your head off. I'm not going to break. I'm not going to bend. We're loyalists to the true king. And when he comes back, he's going to set all things right. We're going to be there waiting for him. We're going to discuss here and as we go forward, and they talk about it here, the opposition that comes against the Lord people who hate God, the devil and his angels. But we have to start with this. The sides are not equal. You know how they try to cast every Monday night football game as some amazing matchup, right? It's like, oh, here come the Patriots, unstoppable Tom Brady. And here come the Browns, who have won one game this year, but they look ready to break out for another one. Right? I, I remember this when uh, I'm a Miami Dolphins fan, and my f- grandfather is a uh, San Diego, or I guess Los Angeles now, Chargers fan. And I remember one time there was a Monday night game years ago when the Chargers were hot, they were running for the playoffs, the Dolphins stunk, kind of like they do now. And the way that they framed the game at the beginning was the Chargers had Ladanian Tomlinson and the Dolphins had Ricky Williams, who great running backs. And they're like, setting up this game between this great running back and this great running back. What happens if you put one on this side and one on that side? What's gonna happen? And I'm like, I know what's gonna happen. <laughs> it's, it's a terrible game. And that's how we can we can look at the, the devil and God sometimes. And that's how the devil loves to spin it, right? I'm a contender. I'm ready to pull this one out but it's like no you're not you're not gonna win this game everybody knows who's gonna win this game they're not equal sides because god is the absolute ruler of the universe the despota he is the despot of the universe absolute power got to keep that in mind because the devil likes to come in and go ooga booga and make us afraid of him and let's move on that's actually the second point they're acknowledging the lordship of jesus christ and they're also acknowledging the rebellion of god's people from David's day to theirs. That Psalm 2 was written about those who would not receive the legitimacy of David's kingdom. And this happened several times. When David first became king, when Saul and his sons died at the battle with the, the Philistines, David was anointed king, but Abner, who was Saul's uh, commander of his army, took Saul's son Ishbosheth and raised him up as king. And for seven years, there were competing kings in Israel. And there's a whole long story that is well worth your time in 2 Samuel that you can read about it. But David had seven years where people did not acknowledge him as king. And then later on, his son Absalom would stage a coup. And all of these friends that David thought would be with him forever turned on him and cast him out. But the Lord reminded David, and David would remember, God anointed me. Why are you standing against the Lord's anointed? David wouldn't even stand against God's anointed. Remember that? When Saul was placed into David's hands and he could have killed him twice, he said, I'm not touching somebody that God has anointed. And then David becomes king, and there's plenty of people willing to touch God's anointed in his life. Then he writes this psalm and says, what do you think you're doing? God's the one that set up the king, and it applies beyond that to the son of David, the king of kings, what do you think you're doing rallying yourself against Jesus? You read the book of Revelation and it talks about the Antichrist raising up an army to fight against God. It's like, are you crazy? The Lord sits in heaven, what? Laughs. You're laugh- he's laughing at it like, really? This is what you want to do? You remember in John 19:15, when Jesus was on trial, he had been beaten, he had had the crown of thorns pushed on his head and they were shouting away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And they said, we have no king but Caesar. They didn't love Caesar. But what that was, they were a mouthpiece for all of humanity saying, we'll rule ourselves. We don't want God to rule over us. That's the state of the world. Ravaged by sin in rebellion against God. From day one, we will be like God ourselves. We'll rule ourselves. But there's something important to notice. There is a culprit behind all of that. We are absolutely responsible for our own rebellion, but the Bible tells us that there is an adversary who is working to stir that rebellion up in us, and we call him the devil or Satan. We're not told in the Bible exactly why or what happened when the devil rebelled against God. There's a couple passages in the major prophets, Isaiah 14, there's one in Ezekiel, that seem to be... One of those dual meaning passages where he's writing about the king of Tyre or the king of Babylon and it it sort of goes beyond the king to a level that this is probably more than that. But it seems to have something to do with pride. You read in Isaiah 14, the five I wills, right? That I will exalt myself above the Lord. And Jesus says that he was struck down like lightning from heaven. If you've ever read Paradise Lost by uh, John Milton, the, the opening scene is Satan waking up wondering what happened because he's been cast down to hell with all of his angels. And he's like, what, what just happened? <laughs> because the Lord struck him down. There was no debate. There was no conversation. He's cast him out of heaven. And I think that it's reasonable to assume Because of the fruit of what he does. That Satan or or Lucifer was the name that we we attribute to him. We use the name Lucifer because the Greek god of the morning star was called Lucifer. And the Bible refers to him as the morning star. So we, we take that name and appropriate it for him. It's fine. So why would he rebel against God? I think his hatred for humanity teaches us something. When God created the earth, And the people that were on it and everything that was there, this was something new. The angels had never seen anything like this because they're not physical, they're spiritual. And now God has created this whole new dimension that they are not a part of. And God says, I'm going to put my special creation here. They're going to populate this world and you're going to help them. And I think Satan saw that and was either jealous in his heart or just despised them. He looks at himself, he saw who he was, and he said, I'm going to ruin God's world. I'm going to rule over God's world. And it led to the rebellion in heaven. And Revelation tells us that a third of the stars were thrown down with him. We see about a third of the angels who went with him. The serpent who tempted Eve in the garden and everything that follows. The devil hates life. He's he's a destroyer, he's a murderer, he's a liar. And he tries to exploit our weaknesses and our rebellion. I think he looks at the weakness of people and it, it makes him sick. You see, these people, you ever know somebody like that? You ever read about somebody or know somebody that just has a hatred of people because they're weak, because they fail, because they're liars, because they're hypocrites? I think that, that's what you say diabolical. Right? That's that's devilish attitude because he looks at us and he says, they hate they hate God. They're, they're just as weak as I am. All I have to do is whisper in their ear a little bit and then they're going to go and that whole family is going to be destroyed. And because we're so prone to that, the devil hates us for it. He says, I'm going to rule over this world, Lord. You don't deserve, God, to have these people. I'm going to rule over them. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, says that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. calls him the prince of the power of the air. The devil doesn't live in hell. Hell is his final destination and he's not gonna like it once he gets there. The devil is what the Bible says, the power of the air. He's there to stir up and provoke people to act according to their sinful impulses. And it is incorrect to say that every sinner or every bad thing is inspired or done by the devil. There are some people that they see a demon sitting on every tree branch, you know, and the devil made me do it, and there's a spirit of this and a spirit of that. Bible does not give us that much information about the devil, and I think that's for the best, don't you? But the entire system is his design. Bible says, the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, there's another verse that calls him the God of this world, little g, God of this world. And everything that is horrible and awful in this world is a result of his machinations. And he says, We were slaves to sin. God is sovereign, but Satan is a rebel. He wants to destroy everything that God has made, he wants to ruin everything good that God has created. He hates God, he hates humanity, and he's so full of pride that he thinks he ought to be worshiped, and he looks down on us and despises us for it. Earth is the battlefield. We are the prize that is being fought over. The world is the territory that's at stake. And the Bible narrates amazing stories of a spiritual war that is still going on between the devil and his angels, as the Bible says, we call them demons, and God and his angels. And we don't see that physically It's like submarine warfare. It's beneath the surface, but sometimes the Bible opens up the veil a little bit and shows us what's going on. We're going to see this story in a few weeks here, where Peter is arrested and the angels come and let him out. Or Daniel, who tells the story of the angel that was fighting against the demon that had to break away so that he could bring him a message and then hurry back so that he could help his buddies out finish the fight. This is the world that the church acknowledges. They acknowledge we're living in that world. Where God is sovereign, but the devil is a rebel and he's stirred up the people. You ever wonder why people are so opposed to Jesus? Doesn't make any sense. You look at what the church does. How much good the church has done for the world. How you know, we we give all the money. You look at the stats. We give all the money to charity. We start all the charities. We go to these places that people don't go to try and help people. We love each other, we counsel each other, we provide community and the world's always screaming about how we don't have enough community but they hate us. Why? There's a supernatural element to that, you guys. Because it's about Jesus. And they always want to do what the Sanhedrin did in this last chapter. They say, don't preach in that name anymore. You can do all this stuff fine, but don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And that's because the devil hates Jesus. You want to do it in the name of Buddha or Muhammad or Mickey Mouse, people don't care. Go for it. Knock yourself out. The minute you bring Jesus into it though, ah, separation of church and state. They run into that. You know, it's because the devil is sitting there provoking that in them. It's not that it wasn't there to begin with, it's not like he's controlling them. It's that he just he stirs that up, he provokes that. Not Jesus, anything but Jesus. Jesus said that God loves us and look at the world around us. Does that look like a loving God to you? Yeah, keep your Christianity out of here. This is the world the church acknowledges. They say, Lord, there's a fight between you and the wicked one, and we're caught in the middle. It is not Jerusalem against them, it's not Lord us against the Sanhedrin, it's Lord, they're fighting against you, they're resisting your anointed. It's the forces of evil against the sovereign Lord. They lay out the problem, God, these are the same people that hated Jesus and they're hating us now and they're threatening us and we know that these guys are not afraid to put people to death, so they're going to pray now. How would you pray? Before you read, I know you've read this before, but how would you pray if that was the case? What would be your, your plan of attack, your strategy if that happened? What if we were out in public somewhere and there was a man in a wheelchair and we prayed for him and raised him up and he could walk and a whole huge crowd gathers and we begin to preach the name of Jesus and then the police show up, throw some of us in the back of a truck, take us down to prison, we're there overnight. The next day we're brought before a judge who tells us, do not preach that name ever again and then turned us loose. And then we came back here and we gave the story. What would be our response to that? You know, I've got a good lawyer friend we can call. They can't do this to us. (laughs) I'm going to make some signs. We're going down there. We're going to let them know. We're not going to put up with this. Who's got a really popular Twitter account? We're going to let the world know. We're we're not going to stand for this. The disciples, the early church said, all right, Lord, here's how we're going to pray. Verse 29. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you, this is so great, while you stretch out your hands to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Are we allowed to pray for that? The Lord said, look guys, I'll give you boldness, but you can't pray for signs and wonders. No, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You know, We talk about the battle between heaven and hell and that that's that's what's going on in the world. We think our our little lives are so massive and mean so much and the Lord is like, don't you see what's going on all around you? When Jesus showed up, the game changed. If we're gonna keep using that analogy of the, the undersea battle, the submarine warfare, when Jesus showed up, the sea started to roil. He walked into places and demons freaked out. Remember when he started to preach and there was a man in the back of the room who started to scream and he said, what are you doing here, Jesus? What are you doing here? Because he knew who Jesus was. Jesus showed up and there was a man that had been terrorizing his village for years and they tried to tie him up with chains and he couldn't even be bound. He had the legion of demons. And Jesus shows up and this man is at his knees quivering and shaking and saying, please don't hurt me, Jesus. When Jesus showed up, Everything changed and he begins to bring liberty to those who are bound, whether spiritually or physically, or even just in their own lives, in their own hearts, bringing forgiveness and healing and the the conquering of the demons that were possessing people. Turn to Isaiah chapter 61, will you? This is going to be a little ways to your left. Isaiah chapter 61. This is the passage, as you're turning there, this is the passage that Jesus preached on the first time he showed up in the synagogue. We read about this in Luke, but I want to read the whole thing because this is key. Isaiah chapter 61, when Jesus showed up, he said, this scripture is today fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus said that this passage has been fulfilled. So let's read it knowing that it is being fulfilled right now. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 4. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me just like in Psalm 2, has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. I love that, because captives are people who are in jail for something they didn't do. Prisoners are in jail for something they did do. Both of them. I love it. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they... They may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, verse four, check this out. They, these people that I have come to liberate, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. That's the church, y'all. Verse four, that's the church. When Jesus came, he began to heal everything that sin had ravaged. He was empowered with his Holy Spirit. He begins to preach forgiveness of sins. He begins to heal the sick. He begins to cleanse the lepers. He's casting out demons. He's challenging corrupt authority. He's bringing good news to those who are on the outskirts of society. And in John chapter 20, verse 21, after his resurrection, Jesus said to the church, Peace be among you, as the Father has sent me, so I now send you. It's a fulfillment of that prophecy we just read where Jesus talks about the the power of God being upon him to do all these wonderful things and bring so much healing to people's lives. And then in verse four, he says, and these people that I heal and redeem and restore and give joy, they're gonna go out and they're gonna begin to take back what sin has corrupted. They're gonna rebuild the foundations. They're gonna restore the devastation. And that's why Jesus said in John 20, 21, I'm sending you just as I was sent. This is why Jesus said, I have to go. I can't stay with you guys. Because if I go, the Lord will send the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that is upon me to do all these things is going to be upon you to continue to do all these things. What could the Lord do with a million people empowered just like Jesus was? That was God's plan. I'm going to empower all of them. This is the purpose of the church to heal what has been hurt, to push back the darkness, starting with sin starting with proclaiming the forgiveness of sins, denouncing the false gods, and bringing people to salvation, but extends to the redemption of lives. We've talked about this, how when the gospel reaches one person, it starts to affect everyone around them, and now these relationships start to be healed, and now decisions start to be made differently, and so the lives start to improve, and now they're spreading it out to other people, to the teaching of wisdom, where we're not just bringing people to salvation. We're not just seeing their lives change, but they're being taught how to live in accordance with God's will. And they begin to make new things and and rebuild those foundations that have been broken down. That's what God meant to do with the church. To, To send out soldiers into that battle, right? There's a spiritual battle over what happens in the physical. So the Lord says, I'm going to empower countless soldiers to go out and fight in that battle. But as the church learned this day, just as the Lord has opposition to his work, there is opposition to the work of the church. The enemy stirs up people against the work of Christ everywhere the name is named. When you start preaching in Jesus' name, the knives come out. Even among people who should know better. It amazes me, you'll even see allegedly Christian pastors and Christian people that go on TV or go on whatever interview show when some Christian steps out and does something bold and maybe gets a little close to the line and they start saying things like, you know, really, church ought to be kept to the church, right? We really shouldn't be doing that kind of stuff and making all kinds of apologies for the name of Jesus, There is opposition. We face the same cosmic enemy that Daniel strove against. Daniel saw these visions that God gave him of these colossal cosmic battles between not just kingdoms, but the spirits that oversaw kingdoms. The same devil that tempted Jesus in the wilderness, trying to exploit his weakness as a human. Turn these stones into bread. Throw yourself off this mountain. Bow down and worship me. God has sent us out to do this amazing work that Jesus did. Great, we love it, it's exciting. But there's opposition. They're like, Lord, we're we're out here doing your work and now they're threatening us. So what did they pray for? Well, first we have to do what they did. And we have to recognize that the enemy and the battle are not physical, they are spiritual. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Their battle was not against the Sanhedrin. Their battle was against the devil and his army, the forces of sin in the heavenly places. We, we, we have to recognize that because if you, if you think it's just physical, then you're going to start to think, okay, well, let's come up with some better methods. Methods are great. God loves methods. But the Lord is less concerned with your method than he is with the power behind it. They prayed. They didn't say, okay, so the Sanhedrin doesn't want us preaching in the temple anymore. So let's find somewhere else we can go preach. Uh, How can we adjust this message so that way we're not compromising, but we're not going to tick them off? Do we know anybody? Do we want to give Nicodemus a call and see if he can work out a deal for us? They prayed. They didn't say, Lord, cause Annas and his corrupt high priesthood to be voted out of office and bring in a righteous Sanhedrin that will lead the way for us, Lord. They didn't pray, Lord, cause Rome to fall so that we can set up a righteous government. They said, Lord, make us brave. That's what they prayed for. Not, Lord, change all this. They said, Lord, change us. Make us brave to do the work of making disciples that God had given them to do. They're like, well, we can't stop. We can't change what we're going to do. We've been commissioned by God. So, Lord, we're going to be afraid. Would you help us? They kept going. Boldness to keep going in the, the first great awakening, when George Whitfield and John Wesley and Hal Harris and these guys started to preach, the Lord was getting a hold of their lives, and they became obsessed with what is so obvious for us now, but they called the new birth. They're like, there needs to be a moment where you come to salvation and receive Jesus and be filled with the Spirit. And the Church of England was resistant to that. Don't come around telling people that they need to have an experience with God. That's disruptive. They need to be loyal subjects of the crown and loyal subjects of the Church of England. And they're preaching these radical messages and people are packing these churches out until eventually the Church of England says, you're not coming in here anymore. You can't preach in the churches anymore. So you know what they did? They started preaching out in public. They went out to the fields and started preaching there. They started going into people's houses and preaching there. They built their own buildings that weren't technically churches because it was technically illegal to call it a church. They called it a society building and they would preach there. They would go to where the coal miners went by every day and they would preach out in public. And then these people started pulling them off the pulpits and they'd get dragged through the streets and get beaten for it. It wasn't like it was all hunky-dory and great. There was constant opposition. In England, this wasn't Afghanistan. This was England. England in the 1700s, no less. We think of that, oh man, if we could go back to those times. They kept going. They were bold. They knew, well, they're not going to change, so we better be brave. Let's keep going. If you can recognize that the battle is spiritual, you know you've got to keep going. But here's the best part. If you recognize that the battle is spiritual, you can be filled with faith, and you can get excited, because if it's spiritual... And God's on our team. God is the absolute ruler. God's the despata of the world. He can't be stopped. So let's keep going. His designs, as he said in verse 28, his plans always come to pass. He said, they thought they were fighting against you by crucifying Jesus, but even that was part of your plan to redeem the world. The solution then is not better strategies, but courage to step out and to keep moving forward. We can't change our mission. We can't change the name. And there are those that want to do that They think they're helping the church, but they're not. They're they're diluting what God wants to do. And we dilute it down so much. And I say this because I saw this in my own generation as I was growing up. I'll use the example of of youth ministry because I was a youth pastor for seven years. When I was going through the youth group, when I was coming up, The trend in the church was, hey, when the kids come to the church, do something that will draw them in and make them want to keep coming back. Make it fun. Make it exciting. Don't really lean into the gospel. Don't tell them about Jesus. Make friends with them. And then when they trust you and they love you, then you can start talking to them about Jesus. And they didn't do that at the church that I went to, but that was everywhere, man. You guys remember some of this. We want to attract them to the Lord. And then when they love us, then we'll start telling them about Jesus. That generation is the generation that has walked away from the church more than any other generation in recent memory. It didn't work. We have to recognize that. It did not work. It was a colossal, absolute, undeniable failure. We're not going to talk about Jesus. We're not going to talk about sin. We're not going to talk about the blood. We're not going to talk about heaven. We're not going to talk about hell. We're going to give them life lessons to live by. And they all left the church and are still leaving the church. It didn't work, you can't switch. You can't stop preaching in the name. Well, if I preach the name of Jesus, they'll leave. Well, we tried not preaching in the name of Jesus and they left, so we might as well get back to what the word says. And I'll tell you, when you can preach boldly to people, at least they can appreciate that. When I had youth group, you brought in these hard kids that had rough lives and were angry and bitter and yelled at their parents. If when I stood up and just preached boldly about Jesus and what the Bible says, they were the ones that wanted to come up and be my friend. Because like, okay, this guy's not messing around. But when you try and soft pedal it, and you turn it into this like this Instagram post with a sunset in the background, who wants that? That can't change my life. Hey, God wants to make you the best you you can be. Is that technically true? Yes, of course. But like that comes way after the fact that you're a sinner, and you're going to hell, and you need Jesus, and God loves you. Hey, I want to be your best friend. They've got school counselors that tell them that. What do you have to offer that is different than that? And, I'm, and beyond youth ministry, it goes to the whole church. We cannot change. Well, they don't want it. Then we need to be brave to keep going. They're going to kick us out of the public square. Who cares? They've done that for all of history. And if we're so acceptable to all these people that hate God, isn't something wrong? All these people that hate Jesus and hate the Bible and talk about how the church is an oppressive institution that has brought down millions of people and keeps down all these people and I hate God and I hate Jesus and I hate the Bible, but he's okay, I like this church. Ding, 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 ding. alarm bells should be going off. <laughs> Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you because that's what they did to the false prophets. You know what they did to the real prophets? They killed them. They chopped their heads off. They sawed them in half. They threw them to the beasts They threw them in a pit they said get out of here we don't want to hear what you have to say the solution is not better strategies but courage the devil's strategy was to make them afraid to get them to compromise i wonder if if nicodemus and joseph of arimathea and these guys that were part of that set showed up and like guys look they'll be reasonable they just want you to back off a little bit if they would have listened to to that Hey, you know what, Peter, John, there's some wisdom to that. I mean, they are the council after all. God put them in place. We should be listening to them. I said, no, no, no. We've got to pray for boldness and keep going. In your life, your life has a plan that God wants to implement through you. God has people that he wants you to touch that no one else can touch. He wants you to heal relationships that cannot be healed anywhere else. He wants you to bring the gospel to people who will listen to nobody else. You've got to be brave and keep going. And the disciples asked for something else. The one that makes us all uncomfortable. I love it. I love it. They prayed specifically for signs and wonders. Are we allowed to pray for miracles? Yes. Because they prayed for miracles. And God loved that prayer so much, he shook the building. Cuz hey, I really liked that. God approves of this kind of prayer. God gets excited when his people come up with brave solutions. You see this in the Bible. We talk about Jonathan and his armor bearer. It may be that God wants to give the whole army into the hands of two people. Let's go. And God said, sweet, let's do it. (laughs) Elijah said, there will be no rain except at my word. The Lord said, awesome. Let's go to Cherith. Let me teach you how to pray. Let's get you ready for this. The Lord loves it when his people are brave and bold. 2nd Chronicles 16:9 says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for someone on whose behalf God can show himself strong. God's like, "All right, who can I help?" Who wants me to add a little rocket fuel to the ministry, right? That's what God wants to do. He loves that. The church knew that the battle was spiritual, and they cast their prayer in those terms. They said, "Lord, we're going to preach Make us brave. And would you support what we do with signs and wonders and miracles and healing? And it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit again. They were filled again. I've talked early in chapter two that the Holy Spirit comes upon you for power multiple times. If I can use a really silly illustration, it's like when you go to a restaurant and you get free refills of the drink. You're not getting a new one and it always is, freaks me out when you get four drinks at a restaurant and you know i'll just refill my sprite a fourth time and then they charge you 4.99 each time and then that's an extra 40 bucks on your bill or whatever but when you go somewhere and you, you get your cup and you can refill it as many times as you want and and that's what it's like with the holy spirit you're not getting a new cup you're not getting something new but you're getting a repeated filling of what the lord wants to do for peter in the book of acts this is the third time he has been filled with the Holy Spirit. So this isn't even the second blessing (laughs) for Peter. This is his third blessing. And we're going to keep going and there's going to be a fourth and a fifth. Whenever they needed the Lord, he filled them with the spirit again. I've used the analogy before of a fireplace where the fire is burning, but sometimes God comes and he pours kerosene on it and the fire grows big and bold and bright. And the Lord said, all right, let's go. I'll fill you with my Holy Spirit The Lord does not leave us without supernatural power to accomplish the mission of taking back the kingdom. He gave you the task. He's going to empower you for the work. God doesn't send you to do things that he's not going to help you do. God will never give you more than you can handle. People say, God gives us things we can't handle all the time. And they sound really smug. It's it's in the middle. God gives you things you can't handle, but he gives you his spirit so that you can handle it. So it's both. The Lord wants to empower you for what he's called you to do. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul wrote, Though we walk in the flesh, you pinch yourself, your flesh, your body, you're living in the physical. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Don't you love that? Paul's like, stop operating in the physical. Stop thinking about who's doing what and where it is and what, what laws were passed and what threats were given and what prison they're going to throw you into. He says, we don't live in that world. We live in the spirit. That's where your weapons are. That's where the power is. And it's divine power to destroy strongholds. Same power that Moses exercised when the Red Sea parted. Don't you love that story? I love that. Because the Lord stood up against the gods of Egypt and knocked them down one by one by one. And then at the end, Pharaoh said, no, you're coming back. And the Lord sends the pillar of fire that stops them from coming. And then they cross the Red Sea and the Egyptians come and God causes the water to crash back. It was a miraculous demonstration of his power. And the Lord has sent you out in that same power. God did not send you out to make conversions and heal the sick and restore families in your own strength. You can't do it. If you think you can, you're in trouble. The <laughs> Bible says, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. God sent you his Holy Spirit to live like Jesus lived. Everybody that encountered Jesus, their life totally changed. They can define their life between B.C. and A.D., before I met Jesus and after I met Jesus. And the Lord has empowered you to be the same thing. And he wants to give you supernatural power to live that out. The disciples knew they were in a fight. They didn't ask to retreat. We've got to take the hill. We've got to keep going. So Lord, we need reinforcements and we need ammunition. And God gave them a hearty amen. All right. I love it. And we're going to see as they went on, the Lord empowered them with signs and wonders and miracles and healing. Not just for the apostles, by the way. You see this. This is the whole church praying here. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to meet in a few weeks a guy named Stephen, who was not an apostle. He was a waiter. He was waiting on the tables. And he was empowered to perform miracles and to heal. And he was preaching and they couldn't resist his preaching. That was from the Lord. They knew where the battle was and so they said, Lord, you've got to help us out. This is why, as we go through this book, The power of the spirit is so important to us as a church because we are in a war for the souls of men and the task is too big for us the task is too big but god is sovereign god is the absolute ruler and we're on his team and you have a bible's worth of examples to follow in faith matthew 16 18 i love this verse for so many reasons but Jesus talking to Peter and he said, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Gates are defensive. Gates do not march against the city. Here come the enemy's gates. That doesn't doesn't happen, does it? You storm the gates, you charge the gates. It's a defensive thing. And the Lord said, you are gonna be the offense going after the enemy's defense and their defense is not gonna stand because I'm going to be with you. How awesome is that? That's why the disciples said, all right, Lord, there's the gate. We need supernatural power to storm that gate. The Lord said, nope, you gotta do it yourself. You need to just learn that this is the way things are. No, God said, here's some power. Here's the Holy Spirit. Go out and perform some miracles in my name. You are a part of this same story. You are a combatant. You're not a spectator. You've got the uniform on. You name the name of Jesus, which makes you a target. You need courage. You need boldness. And if you can be bold, the Lord will provide the power. And I hope that in this church, at least, we have passed the point of wondering, does God still do stuff like that? Because a few weeks ago, there was a miracle done in our midst as we prayed for it. So I'm not going to have that discussion anymore. God is still doing it because he did it a few weeks ago. He's going to keep doing it in all of our lives. The Lord has been showing himself strong in our midst. And you know what the enemy does? First, he comes and tries to intimidate you. And if that doesn't work, he just tries to make you tired. Isn't that the truth? I just I don't want to go again. I don't want to pray again. I'm just so, you know what? Today, today, I'm not going to read the Bible. I'll do it tomorrow. The enemy is slippery. And he knows how to work people. But if you can stick with it, you'll see the Lord do incredible things. And he will use your life. And you're going to see things start to change that you thought were done. There's no way that guy's ever coming to Jesus. There's no way that relationship is ever being repaired. There's no way that sickness is ever going to be overcome. And the Lord shows up and says, watch me. He wants to use you to do that. Romans 8.37 says, In all things, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We're not going to be afraid. The Bible says that we should not be afraid. But we should be bold. And sometimes you've got to pray for boldness. I don't feel very brave. Then pray. Seek the Lord because he will always answer a prayer for boldness and he'll always answer a prayer for power. And because we believe that the Lord and his son Jesus are unstoppable, if we can get in line with what he wants to do, then we'll be unstoppable too.